Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nesson Birmingham. Today we're talking to members of the senior leadership team at Triplet Therapeutics. I was founder and CEO of Triplet, which was focused on targeting a novel disease mechanism for triplet repeat disorders. Unfortunately, the company was shuttered last year due to a perfect storm. Overall macro market dynamics, making fundraising difficult, two failed clinical trials against a different target in Huntington's disease, and a suboptimal lead antisense oligonucleotide candidate, TTX3360. This extended podcast discusses the birth, life, and death of triplet. I hope you enjoy. It is just great to have all of you on the call here today or on the podcast today, right? Like we've been planning this for months and I know I am part of the problem from a scheduling standpoint and I was even 10 minutes late to this podcast that I've been waiting to do for months. So my apologies to all of you for it. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Let's just very quickly go through who's actually on the call here because we've got, what, five different people. So in order of, you know, recruitment into triplet, um, you know, let's start. So Brian, you were number one. You want to do a quick intro to yourself? Sure. Thanks, Ness. Um, my name is Brian Betancourt. I'm currently an entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock Ventures, working on another startup. Been in the RNA business since about 2009 with stops at Elnilum, Translate, uh, most importantly, Triplet. And I've been in the venture world for the past couple of years since then. It's great to see this group and uh, I look forward to telling the story. And uh, Dave, number two. Everyone, Dave Morrissey, uh, currently head of the RNA Accelerator at Pfizer. Uh, trained as a molecular biologist many years now in RNA-based therapeutics and gene editing, uh, including Novartis, Intelia, and then Triplet. I was uh, head of platform technologies at Triplet. And you were actually one of the first employees at Triplet too with me, right? That's correct. Yep. So this is this is number this was number second, two for us. Second time around with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Irina. Irina Antonievich, Chief Medical Officer at Everyone Medicines now. Previously, Chief Medical Officer at Triplet Therapeutics. I'm a physician scientist by training. I've been in different drug development industries since 2001, mostly in neuroscience a lot with ASOs in the last five to eight years, prior to triplet at Wave uh, Life Sciences, prior to that many years at Sanofi Genzyme. And definitely still thinking that triplet was a fantastic idea and um, very eager to have this chat today. And for full disclosure, Rena and I still work together now at Everyone Medicines, so, uh, which is great. Eric. Yeah, Eric Sullivan, uh, I'm a CPA, about 20 years now in biotech accounting and finance. Uh, until yesterday, I was the CFO of uh, TCR Squared Therapeutics. And I love it's still your background. So this is good. <laughs> We're on Zoom. Um, and then Jeff. Hey, Jeff Sirio. I am currently general counsel at Atomwise, uh, where I joined coming out of Triplet. Um, I was general counsel at Triplet as well. Um, joined the team back when IPOs were flying off the shelf, recently coming off of uh, my, my experience at Moderna. Prior to that, I was at Elkermes as uh, in-house counsel and uh, started my career at Ropes and Gray in their life sciences group. Great, Great. to see everyone today. And again, full disclosure, Jeff and I, Jeff Adam Wise is a portfolio company for Coastal Adventures. Um, so 
the whole point of this podcast is really to kind of give the listeners an insight into what happened with Triple Therapeutics, the sort of evolution of the company. So formation, evolution, and then ultimate shutdown, which obviously we're all very disappointed around. Um, I think let's, if it's, if it's okay, let's start with the actual underlying scientific uh, thesis for the company, right? So Brian, you know, would you mind going into it from a science standpoint? Like why, why you were obviously very early in the door. Like why did we start Triplet? What was the underlying thesis around it? Sure, I'll do my best. I remember very well back to the fall of 2018, Ness sent me some papers, said, take a look at this. And I read it and my eyes opened wide because I had been working on repeat disorders back in my academic career for many years. And the idea was pretty simple, right? It was that you could knock down key members of the DNA damage response pathway, probably with an oligonucleotide in the brain, because those same genes were responsible for allowing or causing the uh, somatic expansion of these short DNA repeats that cause all kinds of devastating disorders. And it turned out this was identified by genome-wide association studies. Uh, it turns out that it's that somatic expansion that's causal for making people sick in disorders like Huntington's, SCA, myotonic dystrophy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So it's a very, I guess you would say a simple idea, a little bit odd and revolutionary, right? That you would want to drug what seems to be such a, a key component of, of molecular physiology. But the GWAS ta taught us that pretty minor reduction in some of these genes that look to be safe to knock down could have a pretty dramatic impact on the, the course of these diseases. And so the job was really just to say, okay, there's a few different genes here that look to be important. Which ones would make the most sense to knock down and how? and then turn it into a drug ASAP. And Oligos really offered the right combination that helped us with both of those angles, right? You could get into the brain, you could achieve knockdown where you needed to, and you could probably get a development candidate up and off the ground sooner rather than later. And the thesis so really, the thesis really here was, right, so you had a lot of work that was done by a lot of academics, you know, probably Jim Gisela and Vanessa Wheeler probably being known best for it, but there was a lot of work that had been done. And that really, the hypothesis was that it was a two hit that you were actually seeing within these patients. The first hit really being this expansion of the repeat above a certain threshold, right? And that destabilized the DNA. So when it was being transcribed, you were actually getting a misrebinding um, or renaturation of the DNA itself that led to kinks that were repaired, which led to further expansion of the repeat and so on and so on until it hit a toxic point. And we don't know yet what that toxic point actually is. So ASOs, we thought about SIs also, right? Um, but ASOs became the primary focus. So, you know, one of the issues that we clearly faced was around, as we thought about delivery and Dave, you know, and, and chemistry around it. We, we obviously looked at Spinraza, right? And what was happening there from an IT standpoint. But we certainly had concerns as we looked at from an indication standpoint. They, what, you know, as you looked at it and came and got involved with the company and looked at chemistry and looked at what we were looking to do, how did you sort of start to think about that sort of delivery challenge uh, and being able to actually treat these patients? Well, I, I saw it as 
as those are size direct delivery as a starting point. Uh, and then a fair amount of encouraging data in the field in general in terms of next generation approaches uh, for delivery to both CNS and muscle through conjugates, whether with ligands or antibodies. And that could certainly be the basis of a next generation product. And then also behind that, uh, starting to think about and some early work on uh, CRISPR-based gene editing approaches, which would be delivered by with nanoparticles as uh, more of a one and done solution. It was sort of an evolution of technology starting what was appeared to be clinically viable or close to clinically viable based on current iterations and then ways to improve that going forward. And that is how we thought about it from a generation standpoint, Gen 1 really being sort of this transient, more chronic dosing paradigm to validate the target. And the target in this case was MSH3. And I think we should talk a little bit about how we got to that. But, you know, Gen 2 being having our experience at Italia really was going with CRISPR-Cas9 then and, and knock it out once you knew that it was safe, well-tolerated in patients and get that one and done. Um, Patient selection indication, you know, as you think about the the relevance of this was a, a key consideration for us. And, you know, uh, obviously, Irina, you know, given the experience that you had coming in and really helping us think about that. And one of our key questions was point of intervention. This is one that came up all the time, right? When do you actually intervene in these patients? Can you talk a little bit about how we kind of started thinking about indication selection to really focus down on? And then how we started to think about the characterization of those patients and shield HD obviously was a critical element here in helping us start to deconvolute what's going on. Yeah, I definitely remember many, many discussions about which target first, but I think we sort of kind of like really coalesced around MSH3 relatively rapidly, but then which indication? And there was always this beauty of, you know, myotonic dystrophy with a muscular delivery and muscle biopsy and how wonderful this would be to be able to sort of measure this. Um, but it became clearer really through some of the work that, of course, CHDI was doing in the field, but also some other people and some other indications that HD, which is really the indication that I think led to the discovery of somatic expansion as a key disease mechanism. So there was a lot of information around HD um, and the clinical progression of HD and the effort in, into biomarkers and then initially paired with this hypothesis that we could do intrathecal delivery like everyone else and address this in a way that other people were also doing this in HD but potentially considering and that's the launch of Shield HD which exact patient population and i think the biggest question was i mean everybody seems to always say like of course early is better but then what do you measure and i think this was where the pushback is what can you measure if you go early there's nothing you can measure and this was I think, a key consideration then to launch you know heroically we wanted to launch three natural history studies when i first joined um so we were pretty much <laughs> really hands-on busy with one um, natural history study, which is actually, I'm very happy to say, kind of like wrapping up. And I still think that this data will be incredibly helpful for the field. I've had lots of companies reaching out saying, can we make sure that we can access this data, mm -hmm. which is now in, in, in CHDI's hands? So I think this is wonderful. So we really did set up the Shield HD study 
to test the hypothesis that there is something we can really measure over like one year period in an early patient population and we included earlier and later patients to be actually able to make that point that we can measure something in an earlier patient population and maybe something different in a later population. And just pause for a second on that because I know for Eric and I, this was a big issue that we faced with equity research analysts when we were talking to them. And Eric, correct me if I'm misrepresenting this, it was it was like, you're going to end up having to do a three-plus-year study to really be able to see a separation of effect here. And the SHIELD HD study that we did very clearly showed that you could actually start to, you should be able to detect within that sort of 12-month period Mm -hmm. rather than what analysts were putting out. And what investors now were sort of feeding back to us in almost an echo chamber that it was going to be a very long-term study for us to be able to see yes. that difference. Is that fair, Eric? You know, as we look yeah. at the feedback we were getting? Absolutely. Um, I, th- and I think it got stronger as uh, Roche Ionis and others put out data uh, where maybe the single signal wasn't as strong that it was going to take a while to read out some of these endpoints. Right. So, you know, that, that really, to give context, there were multiple elements within the Shield HD natural history study that we were looking to actually accomplish. And when we looked at the actual enrollment, you know, earlier stage patients and the tracking of them, I, mean, I think it was, it was great, the number of PIs that stepped up. And this was done during COVID also, right? <laughs> it, I mean, we had the, investi- the first investigator meeting was, I think, the, whatever, the 28th, the 29th of February, I forget which, which year it was. I mean, 2020, yeah, like end of February 2020. And we were all together in the room and we were sort of hashing this out and we came back and 10 days later, triplet shut down like everybody else shut down. And during this time, we started the study. And as you know, we recruited massively ahead of time. Mm -hmm. We had to restrict recruitment in the US to make sure that some of the European sites would actually still have some patients left. And we still went from 60 to 70 patients because there was such a high demand in being part of a study that you know was a natural history study and and we did say if we start a clinical trial you know of course you would be you know evaluated first for eligibility we cannot promise that you will be entering the phase one study but it was uh, and you know from the pis to the patient there was really an enthusiasm in doing the study and and recruiting into the and these follow-ups during COVID where patients had to go back in, right, to the physician for scoring, rescoring again. I mean, it really was just absolutely unbelievable, the commitment both from PIs and from patients in actually supporting it. So, yeah. okay, so we decide HD is the way to go. You know, we look at, and I know, Brian, um, you and I spent a lot of time thinking about what are we going to go after? So as we think about DNA damage response, right? I mean, you know, Dave, we spent a lot of time in Italia dealing with this from the other way for indel formation, right? Like you sit there and say that we have multiple different systems, just to put context here, multiple different systems in the cell to repair DNA damage, right? And obviously DNA damage can happen in multiple different ways. And what tends to come to people's minds is cancer, right? Like, how do you actually impact where we're talking about shutting down a repair mechanism? How do you actually deal with that versus ensuring that you're not going to trip a cell into some oncogenic potential or some other nefarious elements within the cell itself? So, Brian, do you want to talk about the DNA damage response pathway itself and really why did we choose MSH3 ultimately? 
Sure. I think it was actually one of the very first things that we did, right, was look at the list of genes and proteins involved in, you know, DNA damage response as a whole, but then also the arm that is specifically responsible for working on this type of a piece of DNA, a short repeat that expands. And, um, you know, we did some of the usual things that you would do, including looking at the any safety signals that you might see out there in the literature, either in animals or in the clinical literature. We also looked at the suitability of the genes for targeting with our types of modalities, just in terms of the molecular biology of them. And most importantly, we also looked at the genetic signals, right? What came out of the GWAS and related work that had been done by the academics that you mentioned earlier, Ness. And what really jumped off the, the page or the screen at us was that MSH3, among all, of the other genes that we looked at, for example, MSH2, MLH3, FAN1, among many others, it had the best combination of safety from a cancer disposition or, or phenotype uh, standpoint, the type link via human genetics to phenotypes in Huntington's disease and direct evidence in the literature of an impact of manipulating this thing on repeat expansion and Furthermore, it, 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 it met the bill in terms of being able to target it with the right, with the types of modalities that we were working on. Not all genes were created equal there. And the best example I can give is MSH3 had the right directionality from an allele standpoint and from a size of effect standpoint, right? So it was clear from the human genetics that it needed to be knocked down, but not to the floor. So the mild alleles that we saw in these papers indicated that, you know, just like a 20 to 30% reduction of MSH3 could have a pretty profound impact over the lifetime of a patient. So that when you intervened pharmacologically, it seemed to us that 50% reduction was a good target zone for our drug to hit. So if you combine a good safety signal, good molecular biology, the right direction for inhibition, you don't need to knock it to the floor, and that we were you know, intervening with a, a pretty compartment specific delivery to the brain, not systematic, it was the right drug target. And that was pretty clear early on. And you know, it, we, we spent a lot of time walking through the pathway, right? Both from a publication standpoint, human genetic data that's out there, but actually also a lot of in vitro and in vivo work that was done. And I think all of this played out you know, in the in vivo work that we did which was nice too, because we had external validation, right? There were PIs that were publishing and presenting data around it. I want to talk a little, move though to modality, right? And Dave, you know, when, you know, we, we almost started saying ASOs, that's like a nucleic based approach here is the way to do this. You know, it, it, there were other groups that were looking at small molecules. Do you want to talk a little bit about why we kind of ended up saying this is how this nucleic acid-based therapeutic is actually the way to do this uh, versus going down a small molecule approach, which we did spend some time thinking about uh, and trying to evaluate it. Should we, are we doing this the wrong way? That's right. As we did bring in a consultant, expert in small molecule to assess the feasibility of small molecules to MSH3 and, uh, that consultant basically said he wouldn't pursue that, especially as a small company. Uh, it was too much risk, uh, unlikely to succeed. Uh, we did have uh, good conversations with 
couple of CROs in terms of their capability to do so. Uh, again, it, it was going to be a high-risk effort uh, with no guarantee of success. Uh, so, you know, for at least a first-generation product where we could get it more directly out with ASO, it, it made a great deal of set, sense. And as Brian said, you know, having to down-regulate the gene, silence the gene in the 50 to 60% range seemed quite feasible. And that was certainly, it's been shown to be really the sweet spot for ASOs. Uh, and, you know, thinking about other modalities, uh, you know, CRISPR-based approach was going to be potentially challenging because uh, for intracellular, protein that functions intracellularly, uh, CRISPR-based editing typically is bioallelic editing. So we're thinking about ways to favor monoallelic uh, over bioallelic mm -hmm. in the cell and then uh, more allele-specific approaches as well. You know, it's, what's interesting is we didn't, if I recall correctly, and all of you please, please correct me if this is wrong, we didn't know why... 50% knockdown at the time would be was enough. Like we knew it was enough when we looked at the animal models, but we didn't know necessarily why it was that that's all that you really needed. And then I think there was a publication that came out that basically talked about the complex that were complexes and the competitive nature of complex formation for repair. And I think for me at least the light went on. It was like, okay, you need to reduce the protein to a point where it's no longer competitive in trying to actually form this complex. So you got a bias. And arguably, you were biasing into a repair mechanism that is even better for the cell as you look at oncogenic potential, if I remember correctly, right, or repairing those sort of DNA insults. The, when, and, and again, I think, uh, you know, this was, Eric, this was an issue you and I faced again in the market was we, when we looked at delivery, right, so how do you think about administration of a drug? Everybody was pointing to Spinraza. And there was a narrative out there in the marketplace around the relevance, as you think about overall distribution of drug, you know, within a patient or within an NHP, that um, IT, intrathecal delivery, actually would get you to. And yet we were going in with ICV. And I think we got, uh, you know, a lot of pushback in the marketplace. I think it's fair to say initially around that. Right, Eric? Yeah. I mean, people, that's what people expected coming in, given it was an ASO approach, right? Um, and I think changing people's perspective and, uh, you know, walking them through why it was so critical to get it into the deep brain and why an IT route of administration wasn't sufficient was, uh, was something we did on almost every investor call. Yeah. You know, it was that we spent a lot, I think a reasonable amount of time dealing with that. And Arena, when we went in to do NHP studies to figure out distribution, I mean, this was a big question for us, especially given when we we're going into earlier patients in Hutchinson's disease, the need to really get into the deep regions of the brain. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that we did to actually try and figure out what is the right route of administration and our considerations then for net impact on patients? Yeah, I mean, we did start with the NHP studies using the intracycle route, using a single route. We did actually, the first study that we did was exploring three different routes of administration. We used the intracerebroventricular route, ICV, the standard IT route, and then the intracystana magna route. Um, this were a very small number of animals. This was our tool ASO at the time. And the conclusion was that there was no obvious benefit from the cystana magna injection 
there was a better distribution into the deep brain with ICB versus IT, but the hypothesis was that with repeat IT, we could get there. And so this is then what we have also done. We have done a single dose in non-human primates and then a repeat dose. And it was this repeat dose study in non-human primates where we really saw that while we got very good knockdown in the cortex, I mean, there was really not much in the deep brain. From IT. And from IT. Right. Repeat IT. Repeat IT was just not get, getting there. And I, 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 I definitely still sort of stick with that. I strongly believe that we needed to hit this triathlon because the narrative at the time was also that other companies were saying, well, we really need the cortex because there's this cognitive decline and all we need is to target the cortex. And so when we decided that, no, this was not enough, then it became this, well, we should go ICB. I <laughs> want to say, and I admit to that, I was like, we cannot go ICB. Like, nobody does this. This will be a nightmare. And oh, God, oh, God. And this will, nobody will want to do that. So we did then this one study in non-human primates, single injection ICB. And it was mind-blowing. I mean, single injection ICB, this is where it landed. It landed in the striatum. You could see the knockdown in the striatum. Yeah. I mean, just really unbelievable. And I guess this was it then. It was data-driven, well, I remember. It was it from an NHP study. But then you yes. you had to spend a lot of time talking to physicians and patients to actually figure out, is this viable, actually, as your therapeutic intervention? And I think that, 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 that getting that data was really critical for us when we went out into the market to actually try and finance. And, and what, was, I mean, what was interesting is that I was really not convinced that this would be feasible. And so we did have these discussions. So Amar and I had these GuidePoint Global Neurosurgical phone calls. And of course, you know, you talk to a neurosurgeon, they give you a certain answer, but they literally all said, I don't know what kind of problem you are seeing. You don't see any problem. This is like a piece of cake. Everyone does this. Like, this is like, hey, my first year resident can do this. This is like, this is what we give to the least capable neurosurgeon okay we're like okay so that's the neurosurgeon so how about the hd clinicians and then mm -hmm. how about the patients and so this is where we started to set up some of these patient advisory boards um and and our physicians as well and i do want to say that the physicians were very mixed in their response the hd physicians i would say there were really two camps one camp was I told you so from the beginning, go ICV. Why would you even consider IT? And then there were the others who were saying like, you are crazy, you cannot go ICV. And then the patients were truly like, they were like, well, we don't like IT. Uh, can we can we pause for a sec? And, and, and for the sake of the listeners, tell them the difference between IT, what it oh, yeah. is, and then what ICV actually is, because I think it's important yeah. that people can visualize this. Yes. So intrathecal means that you, as an individual who gets an intrathecal injection, go to a hospital, um, and then typically you lie down on your side, and somebody puts a needle into the spine area, into the lumbar area. So that's just uh, very low in the spine. Um, and so obviously you don't inject into the spinal cord, but in the fluid where the spinal cord is sort of contained. 
And so you inject your drug in there. And then the hypothesis is from there, which is very far away from the brain, particularly in a human, it's like like quite quite some distance. You inject a bolus, so like a sort of strong push, and then this will ultimately get into the brain. And then ICV means that you have to have a surgical intervention, which means that you have an implanted little plastic catheter that actually is located into your ventricles, which is this fluid-filled compartment in the middle of your brain. And so you have a hole in your head. Through this is sort of the catheter is put in, and then it's sort of sewed up. Um, and then you have a little, um, uh, like a little pocket here, like a little port that you can feel, but that's not necessarily visible, but you can feel. And so any physician can then inject the drug through this and so this requires a surgical intervention but then the catheter is in this liquid filled compartment in the brain and this is very next to this striatum this deep brain area where really the pathology in Huntington's disease starts to occur and in some of the other like the ataxias not in all ataxias but in some of the like spinocerebellar ataxias mm-hmm. this is the same that even though it's called spinocerebellar actually some of the pathology also occurs in the sort of deep brain areas And so you basically inject the drug very close to where it's a key area that it has to go. But when we did the monkey study, what was interesting is that while we did get some distribution, of course, into these deep brain areas, we also still got good distribution into the cortex. So it wasn't like we have to select one area over the other. Actually, with ICV, we could get both areas that we consider very important. And the reason why we consider them important because it's in the cortex and the striatum where somatic expansion occurs. So unlike for mutant hunting team, which is everywhere, including everywhere in the body, somatic expansion is really much more restricted in terms of where it occurs. It occurs in the striatum and in the cortex. So we had this monkey data. Um, and, you know, this, this was very... Uh, just very impressive data. And then as we were discussing, I mean, we, we were like, I think lucky and unlucky to some extent, but because the patients clearly um, gave feedback that this repeat intrathecal injection, so into the sort of lumbar area of the spinal canal was not pleasant. Uh, particularly for early stage mm-hmm. patients, if they have to go there once a month or once every two months, I mean, we heard more and more that this, like, as a long-term strategy, did not seem feasible. And with the ICV, what we came to appreciate is that once an ASO is in a neuron, it really stays there for a long, long time. So once you have enough ASO into the right area, into the neurons, you don't have to inject so frequently because it actually has an effect there for a long time. This is, this is one of the things I was surprised about is the level of uh, the half-life, you know, when you actually looked at the ASO, especially with the chemistries that we were doing around it. I want to pause for a sec. And, and you know, so here we are, company set up, Cedar by Atlas Venture. So, you know, clearly visionary venture group, as they looked at this and willing to actually take a very big risk, um, you know, after reviewing all of the data to actually seed the company and really very strong supporters, we were building the company. Um, the whole team within Atlas, but really JF being the primary driver there. Um, you know, clearly consideration here is around IP. And Jeff, you kind of came in and 
we've got, we're trying to do a lot of different things, right? We've got potentially multiple targets because we're not quite sure. And there was some discussion about FAN1, I think at one point, about potential upregulation of that. There was, we were looking at route of administration as being another key issue. And then we wanted to be able to potentially cover multiple different indications. Same ASO initially against MSH3, hopefully, or we didn't know, was 3360 going to be the one which was our lead candidate or was it going to be something else? So it was a little bit of a nightmare for you, I think, when you stepped in from an IP standpoint in trying to cover our bases for Eric and I, when we're out financing, being able to give people visibility that we actually have IP, right? That A, we freedom to operate, um, and B, that actually we have IP to block other people from doing this. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how we approached our overall IP portfolio uh, and looking to build it and thinking about stage gating some of the items that, that we obviously talked a lot about as we were building the company? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of the general early stage playbook, right? From as you have, you know, you're wanting to get out there and talk about what you're excited about and, balancing the act of not putting too much out in the public domain, right? Not, not kind of enabling um, other folks to, to too much of an extent, right? But we came in, when I, when I joined, we had kind of a solid position around the sequences and, and a good feeling of, you know, where we were from an FTO perspective. And it was kind of, um, you know, the areas that we were thinking about moving into, right? These other targets, the other indications, and, and other modalities where, where it was, you could see the blue sky vision of kind of where we wanted to go, right? Um, and talk about it with enthusiasm, but, you know, balancing it with, you know, not putting too much out there from a prior art perspective. So I think we, you know, the holy grail was always kind of the sequences that we were most excited about, right? Keeping those very, held very tightly. And, um, and then, you know, being, enabling you and, and Eric to be enthusiastic about where we think this this vision could go. And in parallel, obviously, we're looking at FTO, right? Because clearly something like MSH3, there was multiple publications that were out there. You want to right. talk a little bit about, you know, just our general approach from an FTO standpoint, <laughs> excuse me, FTO standpoint and how we kind of approach that as we looked at, again, being able to provide investors some level of comfort around our position from an FTO Yes, it was, you know, it was effectively just kind of ongoing diligence and kind of knowing what, knowing what our chemistry was, knowing what chemistry we were focused on, right? And, and, and then also the sequences as well. So kind of constantly looking at that, you know, there's this obviously this black box period where you don't know what does and doesn't exist out there. But, you know, I think <clears throat> given Brian's experience with this and, you know, good external advisors that we had, right, it was just kind of an ongoing diligence perspective um, there where we were, again, solid on the sequence, comfortable with the chemistry, and, and kind of continuously monitoring that is, is what put us in a good spot. Okay, so here we are. We start the company, right? We're up and going. We're generating data that's all supportive of the underlying thesis here. We've identified our gene, MSH3. We've identified a route of administration, or we're on our way to identifying it. We've identified the modality we're going to focus on. So, And there are publications that are coming out that support all of this. So life is good, right? We've been seeded by Atlas. They've been great. We now have got to go out and do a financing, right, uh, to bring additional capital in and new investors in uh, to work with us. And Eric, I can't remember when you came on board. Was it just before we did that or was it after we did it? Uh, no, I came right as we were kicking that off. 
So, so let's talk a little bit about that because we were fortunate in, we brought in some great investors in as part of that financing, right? From, you know, obviously we had Alexandria in there. We had MPM, Pfizer Ventures, um, you know, multiple others. Can you talk a little bit about that financing and kind of how we generally approached it to go and actually continue to build, to build our balance sheet and move the company forward? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, it was a broad opportunity, right? Because there was the this conserved mechanism that could address thirty different repeat expansion disorders with one molecule, coupled with the speed that you can take an ASO from uh, the bench into the clinic, right? I think that drove a lot of enthusiasm around the story. And then you couple that with uh, the strong genetic evidence that was out there in the de-risking from a genetic perspective. Uh, so a lot of investor enthusiasm. I think we were pretty smart and selective in putting the round together. Uh, you already mentioned the high quality groups, but uh, MPM led or co-led the Series A. It was a $50 million Series A with Pfizer Ventures. And then other uh, well-known investors, uh, Invis and Partners Innovation Fund and others came in. So, you know, we got the privilege of selecting some of the top VC and investors to come into the story. And, you know, I don't want to skip to the end, but one of my learnings from this experience were um, it's so critical to have a high quality group mm -hmm. of investors together, uh, not only when things are going well, but when things, when you hit a speed bump, it's incredibly important to have a supportive group there. And I want to so, come, that's a big disappointed discussion. We really want to come and spend, make sure we spend time on that. You know, I think, you know, Partners Innovation Fund, it was great to have them in this, Khalil and the team over there and Philippe, you know, really were great also. Um, and I think the round came together reasonably quickly on a, on a, on a relative basis, right? Um, and Atlas continued to support us all the way through that also. So we bring this money in and we're, we are doing well, right? And the data continues. What always amazed me was the data was always very strong. Like there was never sort of this kind of... Un, uh, data where it was ambiguous in any way. It really was continued to guide us and we continued to get hits. And I think that's a testament to to all of you about how we actually run or ran uh, the screens. We did a lot of it through third-party vendors, right? Uh, that saved us a lot of money. It allowed us to do things a lot faster um, than trying to build it out internally um, and really enabled us also then to focus on patients. So, we're plotting along, everything's going really well. And on a no-name basis, right, Jeff and Eric, on a no-name basis, we got some, we got approached to see whether we'd be open to be acquired, right? Which in hindsight, I think derailed us for yeah. months upon months upon months, right? So, you know, why don't we start with the the and and I'll hand it over to Eric and Jeff for this bit. You know, again, on a no-name basis. Um, you know, talk a little bit about our approach, how we were approached and sort of how things sort of played out over the next, I don't know how many months it was. Was it six months? It was, it was a while. Felt like six years, I think. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So we had closed the series a, um, 
we had generated data internally in, in uh, HT mouse models, right, that we could halt somatic expansion. And this was key, but this was pre-DC. So we didn't have a DC yet when we closed the Series A. We nominated a development candidate, um, I guess that was 2019, kind of mid-2019. And there had always been a fair amount of uh, inbound pharma interest, right, around the company. We had a lot of discussions. Uh, this particular group, uh, not a large pharma, called them a uh, mid-sized biotech. Is that a fair yeah, categorization? I think so. Um, so, you know, they were highly interested in the story. Um, they saw the broad opportunity. We ultimately, uh, after a few months of negotiations, typical diligence, typical negotiation, got to a signed term sheet with this group for uh, M&A transaction, uh, change of control upfront, uh, relatively large upfront, right? I mean, these are big numbers. These were big numbers. You know. uh, and we only had, we had 60 million invested and we're talking about multiple hundreds of millions. And when you do the bio bucks on it, uh, you know, I billion think Irina plus. had picked an island that she was going to buy on the base of this deal. <laughs> only to say I didn't want this deal. <laughs> I, I, we're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so we are plotting along in the deal. And there's, you know, there were some theatric moments uh, in the negotiations, which uh, are probably the case in, in any deal. But we're, we're plotting along. Um, the term sheet is signed. I mean, we had the press release written. That's mm -hmm. the thing, right? That's 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 the, the key point that, you know, these things fall apart sometimes. But we had org charts set up and a press release written, right? That. Folks and had their offers. HR advisory firm had come in yep. and talked to all the yep. employees, right? There was contracts right. that yeah. were being negotiated, uh, commitments oh, I, that were being I, made I, to the team. I mean, I knew my I knew my role at the new entity. Right. It was I was like telling my wife what was gonna what was happening, and it was it was a, a real thing. And Eric and I were we were being we were kicked out, right? So <laughs> we were thinking about the future at this point. <laughs> so this was very close. Very close to being Very done. close. And in the final, I'll call it the, the final days of kind of contract negotiation, an IP issue emerged. We did not view it as I, being an issue. We did not. I mean, it can't be an issue. It wasn't related to the lead product. It was, it, yeah, hard, hard to realize that this is, hard, hard to imagine this is really an issue for somebody. So Kate, I want to kick it over to Jeff for a second on this because you know obviously this was this was like a mind bending, you know, Twilight Zone moment as we right. started digging into it. Do you want to talk a little bit again on a no names basis? Talk a little yeah. bit about the situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. So I, I mean, the thing that we'll probably never know if this was really real or not, right? So they pointed to an issue, and I've had to think about it from that perspective because I we talked to, we did our analysis, we talked to third parties who did their analysis, right? And we looked at it from every perspective of, is this really real? And we never thought, we never thought it was, right? But in, in any event, they identified some IP that was out there that they felt would create an issue um, from an FTO perspective for us. So, you know, check writers privilege, right? They have the opportunity to, to, to talk about that. And um, so then we pursued it and we pursued it 
very aggressively. And, and uh, just, I'm sorry, just to step in. When you sure. talk about it being an IP question, this was, this was in academia. So it wasn't like there was this company out there that had some patent that we needed to deal with. This was an academic issue, this was, right? This was an academic issue, right? And um, only in the U.S. In the right? U.S. In the, I in the U.S. In a different target, a different mech. I mean, it was right. Again, as I said, Twilight Zone, mind bending. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so we pursued it aggressively, right? I mean, the 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 economics on our side supported us aggressively trying to clear this issue. And, you know, working with some academic centers versus others, just kind of the timeline um, and ability to to engage, it, it varies greatly, right? And so we weren't able to clear it with the carrots. We weren't Which able were to big clear carrots. it. I mean, we offered, you know, right. we right. really pushed it out to try and deal with this. So then we attempted to clear it with sticks and... Unfortunately, that 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 didn't work either. But the time frame of that kind of that was kind of after the fact, and and the the deal momentum had kind of faded at that point. So, right. I mean, it kind of fell over in the fact that they kind of turned around and said, "We're not doing anything until this gets resolved." We couldn't resolve right. it. We spent a lot of time trying to resolve it, and just didn't. So, we ended up having to effectively walk away. Look, Eric, are you gonna are you gonna say something? Yeah, no, I just to go back to, I mean, this wasn't a traditional large farmer, right? It was a, I hope they're not listening, but a less sophisticated kind of uh, mid-cap biotech. And facts and circumstances change pretty quickly at mid-cap biotechs. And I think we'll never know if they had a little bit of cold feet or buyer's remorse or things shifted internally for them. Um, it's difficult to know if, if this was really the issue that held it up. And also for them, it was a material deal, right? Like this is one that yeah. the market is really going to look at. So, you know, I would do, I would say having second thoughts or navel gazing a little bit, you know, I, I, if I was in their shoes, I would do the same thing, you know? Yep. Um, and I think there was a very active board uh, that was involved in the deal too on their side. But meanwhile, so, you know, um, it, it's almost like you've got this, you know, bifurcated thing that's going on. You've got me... Eric, Jeff at negotiating and trying to deal with these issues, right? We have our investors obviously are clearly very supportive and the board's very supportive of moving the deal forward and bringing it to resolution and completion. Excuse me. And then on the other side, we had R&D, most notably Arena, but Arena was not alone, basically saying, I don't understand why we're doing this. Why are we doing this? Why are we not continuing to move this forward? And I, and I certainly understood that. I think there were some pretty challenging conversations that we had uh, on the R&D side around, you know, uh, owning our destiny versus handing our destiny over to somebody else that effectively has oversight. So you want to talk a little bit about that arena? Yeah, I mean, it has, I think, something to do with my prior uh, experience in mid, mid-sized pharma. I was working for uh, another mid-sized pharma who uh, claimed just this this particular company to wanting to be innovative. And when you look at what these people have done in their entire life, it was the opposite of innovate, at least at an R&D level. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, you know, you can say there is a commercial innovation. If you take something and you repurpose it, there can be a commercial innovation, but it's not an innovative approach from a pure scientific perspective. And so I was just, for me, it was like uh, just not a fit. It, it didn't, didn't seem to make any sense to me, even though maybe, you know, they did truly want to buy into something that was innovative. Um, and then I remember that this... Um, I mean, they had this late-stage compound that they were sure would land them an FDA approval, yeah. And it was one of these sort of... Let's not get into specifics here now. Yeah, yeah. No, but re repurposed and, you know, like really risky from a commercial perspective, but maybe not risky from a scientific perspective. And and I just felt that the, the mindset to me, I, I did not... I simply have to say, like, I didn't believe that they were really mm -hmm. open to taking on... A, a really innovative at all levels. I mean, innovative in terms of how to approach HD, um, ASO, ICV. It just didn't seem to me to to match with what I have heard them say. Uh, well, let's say what I have heard them say in between the lines. Yeah, and so I was hoping that we would not be <laughs> part of an organization where I was very doubtful if we could really succeed. Well, I, I think looking, you know, if I recall correctly, you know, between Dave, Brian, yourself, the inbound diligence questions you were getting and the sort of areas of focus would also sort of tended to drive you in that direction of maybe less innovative, maybe less willing to actually expand the application and the footprint here and looking almost for a guarantee uh, and overall sort of response in a patient population, right? Um, yeah. So I think that the the way the diligence was performed sort of exacerbated. The, is that fair to say? Exacerbated the perspective that the three of you had on this. Yeah, and it was always um, really there was a let's say a very basic scientific interest that was actually there, and the scientists this was great. But when it got to the next level, there were like uh, a lot of these more risk aversive sounding you know like everything had to be perfect which of course it's not particularly not when you do something the first time and that you know so that that was pretty that was that was a pretty brutal process i have to say i don't know how many times we walked away from that deal i think i want to say five but like you know i remember being on a hike and getting a call jeff from you and I used an expletive and said, we're done now. We're walking away, right? I think, Eric, you were on that call too, right? So, you know, it, 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 it was a very trying situation um, and frustrating one, um, you know, especially with the academic group and trying to deal with them. And I would say it's not one of the mainstream tech transfer groups that we're all used to working with historically. It's one that's less sophisticated. Um, so I think there was certainly learnings for me in that. Um, okay, so we're... We're, we're, but R&D is going gangbusters, patients really great, PI is great, shield up and going. We hit COVID, right? And I kind of want to hand it over. There were, there were some decisions that we made very early on and, and really, you know, Jeff and Eric, I think both of you really were the drivers in many respects as we kind of thought about how to handle it and a lot of it fell in your lap. And I think Amy Laurier also was, was an, a very critical element in that. Um, but, you know, Talk through what how, what we did and and what we enacted. You know, we, I, if I recall correctly, we had a board meeting. We then were kind of going into midterm break or whatever it was. Right, it was kind of happening for schools. Um, 
and you know we disappeared for a few days off and a few days off in that period of time it was we shut down so you know you know can both of you talk about that a little bit and talk about what we ended up having to enact to allow us to effectively reopen um and again when i think about speed bumps you know i'd love to talk about that and then move into the implications as we look at our r&d and being able to move our data forward So I think this story starts at the Cowan conference, right, Eric? I think it all started at the Cowan conference. Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, looking back on it, COVID obviously un unfolded fast. I mean, it probably did it every school and every company uh, that there is. Looking back on it, I was pretty surprised and I think um, I guess proud. The board took such quick action to make sure to prioritize employee safety above all else, um, even if it's disruptive to the business that's ongoing. Um, and there was never a second thought, and it happened very fast. I mean, we implemented, gosh, I don't know, um, you know, made the office less dense. Only critical employees would go in. Uh, I think we put alarms on people when they came in proximity yes. to each other. They would get alert for tracking. Yeah, uh, we put that, that sticky stuff all over every surface to you know uh, sanitize. I, I mean, and and on and on and on. Right, and we pivoted very very quickly and very early to uh, only going in to support the lab really uh, if it was critically necessary and. Um, yeah, I, I think we did. Uh, and you're right, Ness, I think Amy drove a lot of that and did a tremendous job. And, um, you know, at the end of it, we kept folks safe, which was the number one thing. Yes. And just to double down on that kind of early reaction, right? I think that's where, I mean, we were, we were truly kind of a first mover here, right? And saw, you know, Ness, you and the board saw the issue and pivoted very, very quickly, um, even before the schools really had, right? If, if that's, I'm recalling that correctly. Um, and then we're, we were just figuring out from a policy perspective, right? What, what can we do? What can't we do? And that was so much time and effort. And what should we do, right? From a safety perspective, where it's the ongoing tension of, you know, driving, driving our R and D plans forward while keeping people safe and so many unknowns throughout that process. That, that pilot testing program, trying to get your hands yes. on test for the office, masks. I mean, we put yes. masks and the mask policy, hand washing, showing people how to wash their hands. I mean, I, I think we did everything you could possibly do. PPP analysis, right? Like yes. that was, that was one, right? If I could add one quick thing, guys, speaking about the how the R&D efforts continue, um, one of the strongest memories I have of that time period was we had the rigorous and very strict policies in place, right? Shift work in the lab, 6 to 12, 12 to 6, or 1 to 7, whatever it was, no crossover, um, you know, big spacing, full gear. And I remember I would go and sit out on the couch in the outside area, right? So that I wouldn't go into that space and breach that zone. And at the same time so folks could come out on their way in or out and talk to me about what they were doing mm -hmm. inside in the lab 
And even though it was a scary time, I mean, let's face it, there was so much we didn't know at the time about COVID and what was going on. And the focus was on keeping people safe. There was still so much dedication to getting it done and getting it done right. I mean, really, like I was so proud of what was accomplished in there. And, you know, as research leaders, we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, yeah, we're providing the direction, blah, blah, blah. Let's face it. Those folks were working their butts off in crazy times. Right. And like really trying conditions every single day. And we got amazing work done. Yeah. I'm so proud of that time. And what traveling those folks in, did. you know, traveling in um, and then going back to their families or their partners. You know, it was, you know, certainly a trying the, the dedication was amazing. And, and I think that all the employees deserve absolute kudos for how they managed it and navigated through it. I think one of the things too, and I know that, you know, the whole team was an advocate of it was we also took a view. There were, there were probably three other things that we did that I think was very important. One was we made a commitment to not only the employees, but their families also, right? And I think that that was something that was very important to everybody as we looked at what can we do to help not just the employee, but actually their families and were there things that we need to be thinking about on that side. The second thing was we were very clear from the outset that no one was going to be cut in the company, right? That we were going to support them, that the salary, we would not erode salaries away. Um, and that was with full support of our investors. And I think the, the peace of mind that gave people, I actually think was very important that we were going to write it out um, and, and, and ensure that they were, they were kept whole during that period. And then the third one, which I, I, I remember being in a room with Jeff and Eric around, it really was around, do you take any of the, the, the money that the government was offering to support businesses? Um, and you know, that was, that was a point of discussion that, that we, the three of us, I remember spent a lot of time talking and then we obviously talked to Rena Bryan and Dave about it and talk to the board. But, you know, it was, it was something that really was important um, as we looked at it. And I don't know, Eric or Jeff, if, if either of you want to kind of talk a little bit about that, but that, that was also, I'd say from a decision tree standpoint, that was a, that was a critical branch in the decisions that we made in moving the company forward too. Yeah. So the government made certain programs available. I initially thought that we should take the money. Uh, I'm, a, I'm the finance guy. Uh, <laughs> yes, you, you were ultimately right. So you'll like hearing this. Um, you know, those programs were set up for for uh, companies that didn't have access to capital like we had. And I think ultimately uh, preserving those funds for uh, you know the kind of family businesses and the companies that really needed it was the right thing to do. Well, I wasn't looking for you to say that. I was thinking more of, you know, we sat down, it was on the table, we were eligible for it. And we all kind of sat down and said, is this the right thing as a, as a company for us to actually do? We have a balance sheet, we have investors. Um, and there was a very good discussion about it, right? Um, I think, Jeff, you'd agree, right? We, we kind of really- I think that's right, yeah. We looked at it, can we take it? Yes. Should we take it, right? And, um, and actually, Ness, <laughs> Eric and I were on the, we're making the same recommendation and and uh and uh you know then we looked at it from a different perspective and i think you know history proved your guidance was right because there was you know 
there was some pushback from similarly situated organizations that ended up taking it right with you know with strong investors standing behind them so uh kudos to you on that well i think you know it was it was the only reason we got to where we got to was because we had that discussion like we as a team we sat down and actually made a formal decision what are we comfortable with what are we not um, and it was an iterative process. And what also sure. was great was, I think, going back to our board with the rationale and having the full management team effectively supporting it, you know, indicated to the board that this is something we feel very strongly about. And I know there were some other companies within our investor base that actually took the money, right? Um, but our board and investors supported that decision, understanding the implications of not taking the money. So, you know, I think that that, when I think about just challenging situations we find ourselves in, that that I felt personally was actually one of them to basically turn around and say, we're not going to take this money. Um, but we don't know the implications of not taking it because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. So we're moving along. So COVID's going on. I think the, the team did a phenomenal job, right, to keep R&D going and data coming through. And we put a bridge note or we put a note uh, or we we had we put a credit line in place, right? Which was just a security blanket for us, I think. Um, prior to that, um, that we thought we'd never have to touch, really. But we ended up having to start to reach in and actually draw down that. Um, so you know, our balance sheet was was getting lower. We felt that it was it made sense for us to actually draw down that facility that that we had available to us and start to utilize that so that we could keep things moving um, forward. And we, at this point, you know, we had, or we were about to announce our DC, and we started thinking then about the next financing. So, Arena, you know, it would be great to talk about what, you know, we had this data that validated our selection of our DC, right? And obviously, people think about then the IND enabling talk studies that you need to do, you know, the scale up all the other things that are associated with it, and you have a backup that's coming behind what was early to 3360. But some things happened in the marketplace from a data standpoint. Can you talk about the clinical studies and the data readouts that came out as we were actually out looking to finance? Yeah, so this was in March 2021. There was an ongoing phase three study with an ASO delivered in particularly in HD patients. So a large late stage phase three study that had been going on for I think more than two years by the time it was conducted by Roche. And there was an announcement that the study would stop because the drug that there were two doses being tested against placebo has shown a deterioration of the disease over placebo. Now, this was targeting HTT, so it was a very different molecular target. But, I mean, of all the targets for HD, HTT lowering seemed like the most logical for, like, decades yeah, after the discovery of the gene. And so that this would make the disease worse. I mean, this was, so, so I mean, so there was a study was stopped. There was very little information at the time. It was just sort of a... An independent data monitoring committee decided that the study had to be stopped. Patients will continue to be followed. So this is what we knew. So this was a huge blow to the community, I think to the ASO community, to the HD community, to, I, I don't know, it was like, um, I mean, to the whole neuroscience community somehow. Because- but, but to be fair, we were guiding people towards that this study was not going to really 
change in our from our perspective really was going to change the trajectory for these patients well i think we became less and i mean we obviously were we were seeing data that really shifted i think the focus from htt to msh3 so we and this is i mean this is for me the reason why i joined (laughs) triplab i was so excited about what we were doing because i think over the years, the biology has just become so strong for somatic expansion over HTT. So it really changed the way we saw the pathophysiology of these diseases. But it was never, I mean, I think expecting a deterioration of the disease was still somewhat sort of surprising and, mm-hmm. and sort of worrisome with very, very limited information. And then about a week later, wave that was also conducting the allele selective, so supposedly a much better approach because you only target the mutant um, uh, gene or mutant protein, mutant allele, um, came out saying that they saw no effect. So not a deterioration, but no effect whatsoever. And so these two within a week, uh, I mean, not necessarily competitors because clearly different target, but nevertheless, within the same disease population, with the same general field, using the same modality, um, came out um, and I mean, for me, from a scientific point, it's still really like odd to say why this was such an impact on the investor confidence, you know, because clinically speaking, you say, okay, we have a different route of administration because we knew that there was something that wouldn't be adequately delivered with IT, which could explain some of the deterioration that we have seen, could be some sort of drug talks that you wouldn't see if you give less doses ICD. And it was a very different target. Um, And it was an earlier patient population, which I think in the end, now that we know that actually this did impact some of the results that Roche generated, that they actually went into a later stage population. But so I think initially, and this was, in my recollection, we had just secured a syndicate. They were supportive. It was a good syndicate. And then came out this data, like one hit, a second hit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I think it was, in, you know, I had some discussions with some of those in, investors and I really tried to say, look, if anything, this should be good for us because there's suddenly an opening. There's right. an opening that we, with very differentiated approach, we believe we can succeed. But I don't know. It didn't so, seem like it resonated. It did not resonate. Uh, <laughs> Eric, like you were, you were on all the calls, right? We, you and I were like yeah. tag teaming. So we kick off the financing. You Can you walk through you know, from your recollection as to, you know, from kicking it off to effectively when we pull the plug. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So uh, just to set the stage. So, I mean, we got started. We're, we're a Series A company. We just had the M&A process uh, fall apart. It had been a distraction, frankly, uh, that had distracted us for a while. We got started on our Series B process once that wound down. Right. And just, uh, probably- I'm sorry, just to interject, because this is a very important point, right? As I remember us talking about, do we kick our Series B off months earlier or do mm-hmm. we actually continue to push? And I think we felt 
And the comment about the press release is an interesting one about the HR groups coming in also. We felt that the, si- the signals we were seeing justify continuing the bandwidth and focusing down on that versus going out and doing a Series B or kicking off a Series B, which we thought might spook the potential prospective acquirer. Is that, that's fair, right? So we delayed. Yeah. I think in hindsight, we should have started at months before we actually did. Yes, I agree. Um, so we initiated a, a Series B fundraising process. We pretty quickly got to a term sheet with a, you know, I won't say the name, it's a top five right. uh, crossover blue chip group that anybody uh, would want in their syndicate. And not only that, we quickly got, uh, it was a $100 million term sheet. We had the $100 million around the hoop from investors. I mean, oversubscribed deal, um, you know, making our way to close it. And then you saw the data that Arena mentioned come out from Roche Ionis and then from Wave. And, you know, for the, for many of the groups, I, I think the, deterioration in the Roche uh, data was concerning. They didn't know mm-hmm. if it was ASO related or, or what was causing that. I think the uh, the endpoints and and what you'd you know what you'd need how much time you'd need to kind of tease out an answer came into focus. And then also just the headwinds of okay, triplet, you are developing an ASO and HD. We've just seen two uh, failures of ASOs and HD. This is hard. Um, you are a preclinical stage, you know, moving quickly to the clinic, but a preclinical stage biotech. The market is starting to turn. We're, we're noticing the, the market's turning. This is, you know, uh, early summer of 2021. The market's starting to turn a bit, particularly towards these earlier stage companies. And this is structured as a crossover financing round you know, there's increased risk here mm-hmm. on that this is the last financing that you're going to do. And, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, they rescinded the term term sheet and, and walked away from the deal uh, based on, you know, that competitor data plus just market headwinds. Right. And, you know, the competitor data, I think it was compounded with, you know, the, the you know, analyst reports that were coming out around now, what this, the implications for HD and, you know, things that, you know, the, the press was putting out, again, about the implications of this. And yet, Irina, to your point, we spent a lot of time saying, being very clear, like, here's the reason why this is not relevant to us, right? And here's how we think about dosing paradigms as we think about ASOs. Here's what we think about chemistry. Um, here's realistically what the data is telling us. And, you know, one of the things that always surprised me was, you know, it was we were in meeting after meeting where we had all of this human data, right, that was completely validating. And I see Brian smiling, right? I mean, you remember one of the meetings that we had that I almost lost my head in it. It was like, I just couldn't believe the, the tack that the, the, their advisor was taking. It's like you had all of this massive amount of human data, and yet they wanted mouse data, rodent data. You know, and you're like, like, like I was like, you've got, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, human data trumps mouse data, but you, you'll only back us if we have mouse data. I mean, it was like, it was, ins- it was almost insanity. And I, I, personally, I felt that 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 was part of the issue 
um, that we really faced that, you know, people being able to differentiate between what we were doing and what was being set out in the market. They just were not able to do that. And then to, 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 to Eric's point, which is exactly what's played out, you had started to see a market from a public setting standpoint that was now actually starting to deteriorate, right? So, um, okay, so term sheet falls over, right? Um, we are now getting data through as we're moving our DC forward. Um, can we talk a little bit about that study, the first study that we did that kind of raised this question about, well, is our DC the right DC? And should we be actually focusing on the backup? So to set the scene on it, you know, um, Brian, Dave, can you talk a little bit about our sort of DC criteria when we're thinking about the selection of it? And then, Arena, it would be great to talk about those sort of the first NHP studies that were coming through with 3360 and how things sort of played out for us there. Dave, you want to take a first crack at this one, or should I? It's up to you. Well, the perspective I have is you know, we were aware of the potential tox issues with ASOs uh, and there's a certain empirical aspect to ASO screening in terms of finding leads that are clean without without tox issues, uh, largely driven by the phosphoric dilate chemistry. So I, I think we did as rigorous a job as possible in terms of triaging leads as part of the standard screening process at high doses in the rat. Uh, and, you know, we came up with leads that were quite, you know, relatively clean. Uh, but behind that, I think, uh, you know, Brian did a great job in terms of developing alternative chemistries and sequences that, you know, in terms of in vitro data uh, seemed to suggest that they could certainly be more potent in terms of on-target on activity. Uh, and, you know, it was a balancing act of, is this is lead good enough to go forward? Uh, and do we have the time and resources to bring up the, the backups that could be better? Exactly right. It's a matter of time, resources, and where we were as a company, mm -hmm. right? So we had a great sequence that we knew knocked down the target. We were applying a tried and true chemistry that was in the clinic, but we also took the time to do SAR, right? Structure activity relationship guided oligo design. I think we made, Jeff, help me on this one, 3,300 variants. I'm just thinking back to all those tables that I made with you. 3,300 variants of the lead sequence. Right. Screened them all in cells. And from those came up with um, four backups that we liked that were equipotent or, or more potent and evaluated some of those in animal studies as well. Um, but on balance, 3360 had the right combination of size of data set, shape of the data set, mm -hmm. what we observed in animals, that we moved it forward. And we felt good about that molecule based on everything that we knew at that time. And I still stand behind that decision. I think we made the right call. If we had more time, more resources. This is the balance you strike as a startup. In hindsight, would I have spent even more time and resource on keeping those backups coming right, right along behind them at every step of the way? Yeah, I would have, but we couldn't do that at the time.
No, we were looking at an eroding balance sheet that we needed to make some decisions mm. around. Um, and obviously with the financing falling over, there was then uncertainty. So, you know, what was the next catalytic milestone? Right, so we have it, we move into NHP studies. So the first series that we did. So Rena, do you want to talk about sort of the, the curveball that we got hit with as we were doing those studies? Yeah, so we are doing these studies. Can you hear me? I put yes. on the headset down. So we were doing these studies uh, with I- ICV, um, and we we had picked a more frequent dosing because we wanted to make sure that we have good coverage for the clinic. And so this was a standard um, dose range finding study, so not a GLP tox study, not yet IND enabling. And so we had shifted some of the designs of the studies, but ultimately we had done the study as an exploratory study. And so we got the, the, the animals were doing more or less fine. There was no, uh, no really concern from when they got also the repeat injection. But then we got the histopathology. And the histopathology showed what the histopathologists or the neuropathologists called uh, neurotoxicity. So they called it like necrotic neurons or dead neurons Um, and this was incredibly sparse so literally they combed (laughs) so they had like each brain was sliced in many 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 different slices and then they looked through the slices um, and they really like had to take this magnifying glass to see whether they find one or two of those cells in a brain and there was a suggested dose response but it wasn't so clear but they saw really these individual cells in some of the slices that were very dense and they looked like cells that were basically necrotic so dead cells and so this was in neurons and well the problem with this even though it was like you know weighed against the seriousness of the disease um, and the sparsity of the observation, but it was nevertheless a finding that is concerning from a clinical point of view because you cannot monitor it. Mm-hmm. Even so, you cannot like even if you say I have a, like, let's say you have something that looks like liver damage, um, and then you say, well, I will carefully because it might not occur in humans, so I will carefully monitor in the human. So there's a way forward, but here you cannot monitor. You can, there's no way how you can clinically detect that there's one or two neurons in a brain that, you know, died. And then the question was like, this repeat dosing, will this get worse? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, the animals didn't have any functional impact, but again, it was very sparse. So, um, so we were, I mean, obviously, concerned we had also we had a fantastic i do want to also really say a fantastic scientific advisory board they were i mean incredibly supportive like from day one all the way through the end i mean we also kept them really i think we were very transparent with Mm -hmm. them we told them the good things the bad things the uncertain things so they felt really i I think part they i think they kind of like suffered with us they had the highs with us and the lows with us I think they were all very, very sad when triplet basically disappeared. But so they were with us along this. 
And, you know, again, there was some, some concern. There was the notion it's, it's really not very sort of frequent. And then the idea was that um, we dose too frequently. So we could spread out the injection interval because given the, what you also said before, Ness, there's a long half-life once it's in the neurons, the ASO, there's no need really to do this frequent dosing. So, and Right. Um, I want to pause there, right? Because mm-hmm. this is kind of step two. So we've gotten this data in. It's concerning. They're sparse, but they're there, right? So effectively, you know, Eric, myself, Jeff ended up then sitting down with the state and saying, okay, well, what do we do from a company standpoint? Like, how do we move forward? Here's our balance sheet. You know, you made a proposal or the R&D team made a proposal with respect to the next step uh, to try and tease this out. But given our burn, given our balance sheet, you know, we, we didn't have the capability to be able to actually do that, right? So, you know, it was... We very, if I remember correctly, uh, Eric and Jeff, we very quickly got the board together to update them on the data that had come down. And we made a decision as to how do we think about extending ourselves or being able to survive to actually run the study arena that you're about to talk about. And there were, there were two elements that were going to be required for us to do that. And again, guys, j- jump in if I'm misremembering this. One was we need to do a riff within the organization. And two we would need the investors to bridge us, right? So that we had the capital to do it. And remember now we've drawn down our facility uh, at this point. And there's an element of that also that we need to go back to, and it was Silicon Valley Bank that had provided this facility to us, that we to go and, and inform them also about what was actually going on and where we stood with all of this. So there were a lot of elements that, as this data came in that suddenly we ended up having to deal with and try and actually navigate around. Um, Eric, Jeff, do you want to add anything or any any comments on that? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you summed it up. It was a choppy time. I mean, there's, we had the the lead investor from the Series B rescind the term sheet based on that competitive data and kind of market headwinds. Then we said, well, okay, let's do the deal without them. And a number of new investors were going to come in for that round with our insiders. And then we saw this uh, talk signal, right? And then that quickly was not an option anymore. Right. And then the then the conversation quickly turned to, okay, uh, we have a limited cash runway here. We think we can avoid the talks by, you know, changing the dosing interval and the parameters and rerunning this experiment. How much is needed to get that answer? And, you know, what's the minimal size organization that that we can get that answer with which drove some of these decisions and yeah, that i was sorry go for it it obviously led to you know a series of hard conversations and, and tough decisions that we're making right and as we think about moving this program forward if you all recall it was a very robust uh employment market at the time right mm-hmm. so kind of identifying you know who do who who do we need to retain and keeping them engaged right as you right. go through these that's right. You lose, you tend to lose focus from people and folks get insecure and they're doing the, the right things for themselves. Right. So that balance was, uh, was tricky to get right. That's a good point. I mean, we ended up putting the, for the people that we kept putting incentivization schemes in place to keep them engaged. Right. And meanwhile, we're looking at the backup now and looking at Brian, you know, and, and trying to speed all of this up, right. To see if there's a way that we can 
start to do something with the backup that will allow us to get confidence if 3360 doesn't play out. So we recommended a riff, right? So we recommended the riff on the bridge. Um, the riff was very tough to do. I got riffed um, as part of it. I think, Dave, you got riffed also. Is that is that right? Brian, you did too. So really, Jeff, you didn't, right? Did you? I eventually, I eventually, eventually did. did. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that really left us with a very much a skeleton organization between, you know, Arena and Eric really kind of running it. Um, and I stayed on as chair of the board. Um, and really, we wanted to turn the card over. And, um, you know, I would say when we did the riff, uh, kudos again to the team. Um, and again, shout out to and Amy, to Amy on this too was, you know, the work that was done for placement to try and help all of the people that we were laying off find new roles in addition to giving them some runway uh, as we were actually letting them go. So I think, again, I I look back at Triva and say from a HR standpoint, I think we did everything right um, and we treated people very well uh, in the process and followed up with with checking in on them after they left to make sure that they had jobs um, or were in a place where they wanted to be. Um, okay, so we're now we've got effectively one shot left, right? Board agrees on the bridge note, right? Which again was just great because they're looking at again a market that continues to deteriorate at this point. Um, but they all stepped up and invested into the bridge note to allow us to run uh, this study. So, Rin, do you want to describe that or talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and just want to say. Some would think that we had two waves of of riffs, correct? I think we had one wave and then a second wave. So one was after sort of the syndicate fell apart, and then and then when we generated this this own sort of data. So so we were so what we were doing basically with a very small team, we were running now the IND enabling tox studies in two species and the human primates and the rat and the non-human primates primates were, was really the, the, the key species where we had observed this sort of um, effect, this sort of um, toxicity effect. Um, and so we were spreading out the injection interval, which of course also meant that it took a little bit longer. I mean, we had to complete the study basically to see the entire result. But we were also full steam ahead on preparing the phase one study because the idea was that by spreading out the injection interval, we would avoid this toxicity um, and we could still get good enough um, exposure of the ASO in the deep brain areas and, and throughout the brain where it needed to be. Um, and so we, we kept sort of planning for the phase one study. We had regulatory discussions as well. Um, so everything was really ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as uh, and it was primarily the non-human private study that, as I said, was was the key IND enabling study. So as soon as the, um, the 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 study results would be available, we we wanted to be basically ready to jump into the phase one study protocol. Everything was ready. The sites we had selected, the sites, the countries, uh, you know, had the discussions with the regulatory agencies, and of course, because some of this or most of this was done with um, external vendors, we had a clinical CRO that was managing the phase one study setup. And then we had, uh, you know, the the CRO that was managing the um, IND enabling studies. So we had a really very small internal team that could manage these activities. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it was. Eric? Yeah, no, just to like put it in context a little bit for listeners. I mean, we were close to 50 people and we, the riff took us down to about 15. That, I mean, that is a significant reduction. Um, super painful, super challenging. Um, but also, I mean, it was necessary to preserve mm -hmm. the money to do the experiments that, that Arena's talking about. So it was, it, yeah, it was really tough. It was a very tough decision to make. Um, and really we had no choice in it. So we run the studies and data comes out. Um, Arena? Yeah. And so, and we were really, I mean, and you know, I mean, to your point, we had a lot of discussions with, also with Atlas Ventures about exactly the dosing and the frequency yes. of injections. <laughs> like we really, I mean, we, we were really sort of, I think the goal of the study was to basically show that there was a dose level and a spread out injection interval that would allow us to not have this toxicity, even if it would mean that we would have to think of, can we get enough knockdown? So it was really sort of meant to sort of show us that there is a dose level that we and, don't have this. And keeping in mind, you know, when you think about these studies, you buy a slot with a certain number of animals. It's not like you can suddenly mm -hmm. start to change that. So there's a limitation. Yeah, exactly as you actually look at it, what you can do, where you, the end is yeah. high enough that the results are meaningful, but that actually you've got enough breath to be able to test multiple dis different dosing paradigms, right? Exactly. So so we had, um, exactly, these slots have to be reserved like a, a year ahead. And I mean, this was, you know, there, there were all of these discussions, like, can we make the down payment? Can we reserve the slot? Because the CROs need to hold the slot, mm -hmm. so they need the money. I mean, and, and, you know, we are talking about substantial sums here. Yeah, I mean, a non-human primate study is more, more than a million, if I remember this correctly, the GOP talk study. But with everything together, it's definitely way more. And and so, um, so we were eagerly awaiting this data. And I want to say that I was... I, I was pretty confident that, you know, with all the considerations we had taken into account to redesign the study, that we would be able to have a dose level that would be meaningful clinically and that we would not have this toxicity. But the data came back and um, they showed the same. Mm -hmm. They showed the same incredibly sparse um, uh, you know, this was described as minimal. There was a slight, again, slight suggestion for dose response, um, but at the lower doses, really minimal toxicity. But again, it was something that cannot be monitored clinically, um, and it was at, at all dose levels. I want to say this was surprising, and it was, I mean, <laughs> we had like almost, fights with the neuropathologists because we told them we said like you have to do this blind you cannot say now i'm looking at the high dose now i'm looking at the low dose and i do want to find it because that's what it sounded like mm -hmm, you know like right. i and we were like no you have to do this blinded this is a good scientific practice and they told us <laughs> to get lost and they said no that's not how neuropathologists work we look at this in a fully open way. We know exactly which dose level we are looking at, and we look as long and hard as we want. And if we think we need to look long and hard and long and hard and again long and hard, 
to find it, we will do so. And we like, <laughs> And because we raised this question, I always thought that they went back and doubled down. <laughs> you know, I remember them going back to slides again, I think, and suddenly yes, finding yes, something. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it was the, crazy. The, because in, in, initially we had, I think at the very first reading, we had like a lower dose level where the, this was not seen. And that and the, traditionally how this is done is that so one neuropathologist reads it and then there's a second neuropathologist who basically takes a, a representative selection of these sort of brain slices and looks again so that the data are really robust. Now, but both I, I, of them look at this and... I'm going to press pause for one second and, and, and yeah. note something that Jeff is probably going to laugh at. This was not the only time we had an issue with a vendor. There was another vendor that disclosed some of our data to one of our investors uh, where we got a call from the investor about the data. Do you remember that? I assume, Eric, yeah. Jeff, you guys remember I remember. That. I remember the vendor, <laughs> it's a vendor that you all know well, um, went straight to our board because of the preferred relationship that they have with them. Our board learned about, it was, it was the craziest phrase, we just want to let you know that there's not an issue here. Was kind of the messaging, and Ness and I are learning about it through our. Board, As we're getting right? calls then in, you yeah. know, yeah. so it's it's the 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 vagaries of vendors is certainly an interesting experience. <laughs> yes. And and I do want to say I don't know whether this is a result of this. I mean, I remember we went back. I think Jeff or Ness or you went back, and 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 I think there was clear. Um, that this was like not acceptable. I mean, there were lots of issues with, with some of our vendors, but like these vendors sort of like, I mean, we actually cannot get quite rid of them. <laughs> they keep like haunting us and they keep like, well, you know, we they want to show us that they can be better than that. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So data's, yeah. I mean, data comes back. It's reflective of what we've seen before. So, you know, that then back into the board, um, and then it's a very blunt conversation, right? We, we effectively need to shut down here. Um, and I, I think, you know, kudos, Eric, to you, really, because you drove that discussion and you drove the sort of unwinding and how best to deal with it. And obviously there were elements both from an IP standpoint, Shield HD, that was still ongoing at that point. And I want to certainly do a shout out to CHDI for really stepping up and taking over that um, that natural history study. I'm moving forward with it. Um, it was great how they really kind of stepped in to work with us on that. Uh, SVB, it was, again, was very supportive, extremely helpful. Um, and I would say very pragmatic as we work through all of this. We, we were holding, I think, weekly or bi-weekly calls, Eric, you and I with them keep them up to date, get their input, make sure that they were not blindsided by anything. And as a result of that, I think they really worked very well with us and worked with us to figure it out versus some of the more, you know, I would say aggressive stances they could have taken. Um, and then a board, uh, an investor base that effectively turned around and said, we understand this happens. Um, you know, we'll support you in unwinding. And more importantly, and I think this is, this is you know, this this really is when you, realize what a good syndicate you've built was if we need to put our hands in our pockets to support the unwinding here and support the people that really have continued to work at the company to get do this right, we will actually do that. So we know we're shutting it down. We know we've lost this money effectively. We know we have a creditor that sits in front of us that's a very large one. 
Um, but in doing the right thing by the people in the company, you know, we're willing to actually write a check to them if we need to, to help support this. So I don't know how the rest of you feel, but for me, when I heard them say that, that was just absolutely profound. Yeah. For, for me, it was two things. The first was, you know, when we told them, when we told the, the board and the, you know, uh, investors that it would be, you know, $15 million to get to an answer on the study, you know, the top holding investors, Atlas and others immediately. Yes, of course, we'll put the money in. Let, let me get my checkbook out. Uh, we're bullish. Let's, let's run this experiment. That was the first thing. And that only comes from, you know, really high quality investors. Um, and then the second nest is what you said. It was at the end, once we knew the answer, once we knew that we were winding down, you know, they were still willing to put in additional money if needed to take care of the employees that were with us to get to that answer at the end and to find a home for the natural history study. So, uh, again, after knowing the answer, after knowing that, you know, you're not going to get a return on the investment, they were still willing to do that. So uh, I think that speaks volumes. And I would say to the team also, and you, Arena, specifically, you guys stood by it through all of it um, at these points of uncertainty before we had even these guarantees in place. So so I think what really... I, I just do want to say just one quick, because I this was like, I mean, I do remember like really, really sleepless nights because I was so concerned about Shield HD. Mm -hmm. So these were patients, they, as we said before, they had been enthusiastic about the program. They loved triplet, they really did. I think they, they did believe in the biology, but also they liked us as a company. We were like always sort of this sort of new kid on the blog. We were doing it differently. We were doing it based on strong data and, and science. And so making sure that this, is continued that this data is available to the scientific scientific community and i'm really really glad that that chda took this on and that they this will be available but this was like very important and i think this was sort of the spirit of triplet that this was important to us that this data would be available to the community so that they can um, really be informed for whatever other programs companies are running so, and that's absolutely, you know, that was always the concern. I want to make sure that we could deal with that. And I think, you know, the outcome was great, but we didn't know that that's where it was going to be with CHDI at the time. Um, so we'd make the decision effectively not to unwind the company. I think what one of the things that I personally found very frustrating as we were doing that was, I know, Rena, you were out giving presentations and obviously we talked to our SAB, updated them and the founders around all the data. We were very transparent about it. You know, we were very transparent about the outcomes from it. Um, and we were dealing with unwinding the company and working with SVB through that process also, right? Which is not a short process to, to do it properly. Um, and then I think I woke up one morning and there was an endpoint news piece or one of the news pieces out there that basically was saying that we were quietly shutting down. And I, I don't know why, but that absolutely infuriated me because I was sitting there going, well... That's not, A, that's not true. We've been very transparent about it. You know, we've been very transparent about our data, you know, um, and that, you know, the reality is there are considerations. If you're going to do this right, there are things you have to do that to do it in an orderly fashion. So, you know, it's, it was, it was that to me really was very um, frustrating to actually wake up and read that. 
um, rather than actually see where there was a thoughtful, considerate process from the media around what was actually going on here. And the fact that we were doing it quietly, I know, Arena, you'd present at least two, if not more, um, symposia with our data mm-hmm. and being very clear about the outcomes from it. So, you know, I don't know about the rest yeah. of you, but for me, I, that was, I was very frustrated when I read that. I, yeah. I was also very frustrated. And I remember like it was in September, I think it was like late September or so, um, 2022. And I had just presented at the EHDN meeting and literally I presented like, this is the end. This is, you know, triplet shutting down. We, we, I mean, we have this data. We cannot take this into the clinic. We, we are looking for somebody who would take some of the assets, including some of the backups that we think is valuable. Like literally I was on stage and I, I had tears in my eyes, like, you know, and, and, and this was a public meeting, you know, that was recorded and everything. And then a week later came out this and, and I remember the picture. It was sort of this door. It was all black and this sort of door shutting down and I also felt this was um, not a fair uh, description at all. Yeah, it's not a story, right? Unless uh, you're insinuating that, you know, they're hiding something or uh, the the, the actual story wasn't a story, right? Right. They did the right and tried to shut it down the right way. And that all got missed, you know? Yes. All it is, it's clickbait, right? So the the the, 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 sexiest sounding headline gets people in so so it was very unfortunate to me you know as a cap to the triplet story that was very very unfortunate part of the reason why i kind of turned around and said we need to actually tell the full story here and when you're unwinding something like this where you've got patients you've got pis you've got your founders advisors you've got investors svb in place there's a lot an ip that we're also want to be very conscious of and cognizant as we were moving that through like it, it's it's a lot when somebody says they're shutting something down it's a multi-month excuse me month process and you want to ensure that you're supporting your employees as they're actually going out to get their next job so you know to me that was that was a terrible you know cap on all of it and how that was actually positioned in the media versus the reality of the situation we were in any any final memories or comments you know before we sign off here i know this has been a long I mean, Brian has something. I also have something. Brian. I just wanted to end. I just wanted to end on a a seriously positive note, and not because I think this podcast needs a coda, but because I believe this target and this mechanism is legit. It will be transformational, right, in all of these repeat disorders. And you know, since triplets shut down over the past, I guess, couple of years now, um, I've fielded incoming interest from a number of companies on the target, on the mechanism, on how you would drug it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a lot of work going on out there on this exact mechanism. And I think in many ways, you know, not to pat us on the back or something, but we were doing something really different, really early and led the field. And honest to God, I think that there's going to be an MSH3 targeting drug mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. And it's going to make a big difference. I agree. And so I'm proud of what we did. I really, really am. I agree. And I just want to say that, I mean, these assets went somewhere. Yes. They didn't go in the dustbin. They went somewhere. And believe it or not, as we were flying out to London, like whatever, three days ago, I'm in the at the airport 
comes up this guy and you know we don't maybe want to mention any names here nope. he comes up and i'm like hey so good to see you and you know about this triplet program and he said like i'm so excited that it went to the place it went i was always believing in it in the target in the biology i'm so he said like i am now left this other company but I, this was my last action i said please do this you know <laughs> and it is sort of like it, it was like really um it took a while so i think eric remembers this certainly too it took a while but ultimately it went somewhere and i really do hope that this other organization will do something with the backups that i think are really worth exploring and aso is still a very good modality for this particular target agree. including icv agree totally agree any other last comments, thoughts? I'll go quickly. I'll go quickly. You know, I mean, ultimately, we were all impacted personally, right? And and it didn't end the way any of us had had hoped, right? But you know, just high quality people throughout this process, right? We talked about it earlier. The investors they stood behind us. They treated all the employees fantastic. Ness, you advocated the board, much appreciated. You know, everyone in this call, their contributions. Irene and Eric staying through to the end. Just, you know, people that would work, we would all work together again. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the folks who aren't, aren't on this call, I'm still in touch with yep. many. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Best team I've ever worked with. Uh, I'd work with all of you again in a heartbeat. I hope we will. So agreed. We, we navigated through some difficult times together. Uh, and I think always with the, with the best intentions for the employees, the investors, and the science and the patients in mind. And we had fun, you know? Yeah. No one's okay. talking about the golf or anything else, you know? <laughs> no, but Eric, Eric is not competitive want, at all. I still want my cornhole rematch. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. And one last thing is, I think, personally, I also learned a lot about company creation and navigation of fundraising and working in a really, really, really fast-paced startup environment. So um, there's a lot of good lessons here too for entrepreneurs and people that are trying to start companies. Agreed, agreed. Well, listen, thank you all. This has been absolutely phenomenal. It's great to catch up with all of you. Um, I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time and it was great to work with you and hopefully we'll do a triplet part two so that we can effectively get an MSH3 drug out there because I'm convinced this is the way to go. Absolutely convinced. Me too. Thank, thank you, Ness. Thank, 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 thank you, Ness. Great seeing everyone. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 